Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. So let's turn to Acts chapter 7 this morning. Let's read over in the 37th verse as we pick up partway through this chapter where we left off a couple of weeks ago. So Acts chapter 7, verse number 37, and it reads like this. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. Father, this morning we have truly been blessed by our fellowship together, by your presence here and our singing, our praise to you, Father, by our time with our children. And now we ask this of you, Father, that you still our hearts and minds, that we may hear your still small voice as you speak to us through your word. You accomplish that, Father, by making very little of me and hiding me behind the cross. The only thing that may be seen is you in all of your glory. And we ask this in the name of your precious Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago and we started this chapter, you remember we were looking through uh, Stephen's defense of the accusations against him. Stephen's defense of the accusations against him. And what was it that he was accused of? If you remember, it was of blasphemy. And there was four areas that he was accused of blasphemy in. It was blasphemy against God, which he he covered as he started this uh, chapter uh, whenever he addressed the fact that there was this God, this God. He believed in the exact same God that those Israelites did, this God of Abraham. You remember he referred to Abraham and he basically walked them through the history of Abraham and pointing towards this almighty God who had made the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham that extended all the way out through them. And they they fully understood by the time he finished that the God that he uh, professed to believe in was the same God that they believed in, this this God of the Abrahamic covenant, the God that had chosen them, had, had chosen them. Matter of fact, he wraps up that section talking about this God of Abraham in the seventh chapter in verse number eight when he mentions to them that there was this begotting of folks and it ends with Jacob begotting the twelve patriarchs. It points to the twelve heads of, of the tribes of Israel. So his first blasphemy charge against him was his blasphemy against this God. And he, he stood up and he used scripture and said, no, uh, I don't blaspheme God. As a matter of fact, I love God. The one who actually blasphemed God was you because you turned away from even that Abrahamic covenant. And then he walked through that scripture and pointed him to the fulfillment of the covenant of Jesus Christ, if you remember. The second blasphemy against him was this blasphemy against Moses, against the patriarchs, against those names that they held so so firm to, and they as they look back on the faith of the fathers. He had gone through the story of Abraham, and he had mentioned this guy named Joseph, this Joseph being sent as a deliverer for Israel and the rejection of them, and they only accepted Joseph the second time around when they had gone home and returned, and and now he steps into the story of Moses as he defends his, his charge of blasphemy against Moses. And once again, he uses the exact same pattern. He says, you know, there is this God who has this plan of redemption. He has this plan of redemption for all of humanity. And he, you, you saw it in Joseph as I walked through. But hey, there's this Moses. If you say I blaspheme against, let me tell you what I believe about Moses. 
He said, what do I believe about Moses? He said, there was a time that Pharaoh decided they would kill all of the young men so that there would be no heritage. But there was this one that was placed in the river in a basket, he says there. And he was found by Pharaoh's daughter. And he was taken in and he was raised up. And this one was named Moses. And if you remember, he tells the story that this Moses comes out from the palace and goes down among his people and he finds one being abused by an Egyptian. And he slays the Egyptian and he buries him. He returns the next day and they, they look at Moses as Moses sees himself as their deliverer, having saved them. And it was a, a sign to him that God had sent him to be their deliverer, had saved him from uh, assured uh, destruction in the river, had, had saved him to be their deliverer. And he returns the next day and he, he approaches them and there's two Hebrews fighting. And, and he says, look, brothers, let there be peace. And they look at him and say, what, are you going to kill one of us too? They rejected the deliverer that God had sent. We start to see a pattern here in his defense of himself. As he keeps pointing at him and saying, you know what? The one who actually blasphemed Moses was you guys. You rejected him. As a matter of fact, you didn't accept him until he had gone away for 40 years and returned. And then he led you into the wilderness, if you remember. That was the story that he had given him. So, so that's where he stands in the first two accusations. They will pick up in that third accusation. The third accusation starts there as defense of it in that scripture that I read to you this morning. The third accusation is this. They accused him of blasphemy against the law, yet he responds with love for the giver of the law. What a neat thing. What a neat thing. As you look there at verse 37, it says, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel... This is that Moses who said it. What did he say? He said, the Lord your God, in verse 37, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, whom you shall hear. See, he jumps right into this defense. He's moving from, from Moses, which is a natural transition from Moses, the taker of the law, so to speak, the one who received it, moves right into his defense that he had blasphemed the law. And he starts his defense against this blasphemy of the law with the one who gave the law. <laughs> He starts right in saying there's going to be this prophet who comes. This, this prophet who is like Moses is none other than who? See, anytime a pastor asks a question at church, if you want to get a right answer, scream out Jesus. Jesus is the answer to all things, even that question. See, what he's pointing out, what he's prophesying that's going to happen, he says, hey, you look highly on me, Israelites. You think that I'm somebody special, but you know what? The Lord is going to raise up a prophet. Notice it says, like me. And it says, from your brethren. Something very interesting about his two previous defenses. All of them fit the same pattern as, as Jesus. They were just like this prophet, uh, just like Moses said about the one that would be raised up from among them. Remember, Jesus was also a Jew. It says he actually grew up from among them. And that's what he's saying here. He's coming up from among them. If you actually think about the pattern of Jesus' life, when he came the first time, what happened? The Jews rejected him, just like Joseph and Moses. He's not going to be received by those until he returns the second time, just like Joseph and Moses. You start to see a pattern here when you look at his defense. And what's the pattern? Jesus. You see, he doesn't stand up and defend himself on behalf of himself. He stands up and defends himself using Jesus. Saying, you know, the problem that you have is it really gets me. What he's saying is this prophet that Moses talks about here as he starts his defense against the, the blasphemy of the law. He said this prophet that's going to be raised up is this Jesus guy. 
And he, and he says, it's coming from among you, yet you did not hear him. You rejected him. And isn't that the truth? As he stands here before them, what have they done to reject Jesus? The cross. See, Jesus come up from among them, and what did the Sanhedrin, what did the religious leaders do? Nailed him to the cross. There was no more blatant physical uh, rejection of Jesus than those in the court. The same guys, by the way, that said, don't worry about the blood. Don't worry. We'll take care of this Jesus. Let his blood be on us. Remember? The one that drug him from court to court, making up witnesses for one purpose. To hang him on a cross and do away with him. See, there was blatant rejection. And when he starts off here, you could imagine them going, hold on a second. I'm starting to see a pattern in this defense. You see, Stephen tells how they rejected Moses and how that law that God had given to Moses, they rejected. He does that there in the 38th verse. In the 38th verse where he says, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. Now, who was the one that was in the congregation that was spoken to on the mountain by the angel, Mount Sinai? Moses. Remember Moses. He goes up and he goes on to say, and with our fathers, the one who received the oracles to give to us, what did Moses receive while on top of Mount Sinai? The Ten Commandments. The oracles. Some of your translations may say uh, something other than oracles, but I love that word, the living oracles, because it's more to me than just a written thing on a page or a stone. It's the very words of God. He received the very words of God. The interesting thing about what you hold in your hand this morning is not just words on a page. It's a living oracle. It's living words of God. It's God speaking to your heart through the word on the page, yes, but through His words. Through His words. And, and He says there that you, that you know this guy. He'd gone up on the mountain. You know this Moses. Then He goes into verse 39 and He says, Whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. So here he is again saying, you know, God tried. God tried to make you understand. He tried through Joseph to let you understand there was a deliverer. He was painting a picture of Jesus through Joseph. He sends Moses. He painted a picture of Jesus through Moses. You rejected him. Now he gives you what you asked for. You wanted laws. You wanted rules. He gives you the laws, the rules. What did they do? They rejected them. And it says, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. God had just delivered them from there. He had just delivered them from the constant uh, beatings, from the constant driving as slaves, the making of bricks and not being allowed to even have a straw to bend them together. The, the, the constant slavery, had, and he had delivered them. From, and now they look back and say, no, instead of this God with this set of laws, we want to go back to where there are no laws. Give me a break. They were slaves. Then, and he says that, that they rejected those. How did they reject them? Look at verse 40. This is heartbreaking. This is, this is the, the people. This is the people that are standing at the foot of a mountain. Moses, their leaders on top of the mountain, talking to God face to face. And here's what they're doing. And it says, saying to Aaron, who was the one who was in charge while Moses was gone, if you remember. He says, make us gods to go before us. And as for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't even know what's become of him. How long would a man have to be on a mountain who has led you to freedom from bondage for you to forget about him? For me, it would take a long time. If somebody led me from the freedom of bondage and slavery, 
It would take me a long time to forget this man, but apparently their memory is very short. And it says that they, they melted down their jewelry. If you remember the story, they brought their earrings, they brought everything. Some commentators say Aaron set the price so high that they had to give all the, the gold that maybe they wouldn't do it, but they freely did it, if you remember the story. If you, if you look back, you'll see that story says that they gave all the precious things, they melted it down, and they made for themselves an idol. They made for themselves this idol that they wanted to, to, to worship. And, and here's the part that really gets me in verse 41. It says, and they made a calf in those days. They offered sacrifice to the idol, and they rejoiced in the works of their own hands. What a rejection of God. A God who has just parted a sea and you've walked through. A, a, a God who has been before you in the day and before you in the night and has covered you. The, the God who has fed you from the heavens. The God who has looked after you and now you can build something with your own hands that's more important to you than this God. And it says, it says God responded. It said God responded. Church, I think that's a message in and of itself to us that we must be careful with that which we consider to be our God. We must be careful with that which God gives to us that we don't make idols out of it and think that what we've done with our hands is so marvelously wonderful. Because verse 42 tells us how God feels about it. It says, And God turned and gave them up to, the, to worship the host of heaven. It says that God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it, as it was written in the book of the prophets. Because I'm saying it's written in the book of the prophets. What's written in the book of the prophets? Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during your 40 years in the wilderness? Did, did, did you bother to worship me like you're worshiping that idol? He, he says, you, you also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and star of your god Remphaim, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon, he says. See, this is... Not God, Elohim, the great I am, they are worshiping. They are worshiping an idol made with their own hands. It was instead the worship, as you notice by that list in verse 43, are all Egyptian gods. They had made an idol for themselves that represented the Egyptian gods. <laughs> what a blasphemy in the face of an almighty God. See, Stephen reaches all the way back to that book of Amos chapter 5 when he writes those 42nd and 43rd verses. He's reaching all the way back in Amos. This prophecy was of the time that Israel would be idolatry worshipers, idol worshipers. And we see that this time that they will last. It will last all the way till they are carried to Babylon and beyond. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, you've seen it. On Wednesday night, we've seen how their idol worship led to captivity, first for the upper region of Israel, the ten tribes, and then for the last two in the lower in Judah, were hauled off to Babylon. 
because of their idol worship turning their back on God. This, this law that they were accusing Stephen of blaspheming. This law that they were saying, Stephen, you're the, you're the blasphemer of the law. This law that was given to Moses on top of the mountain. If you remember in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 20, how does that law begin? How does that law begin that was given to Moses on top of the mountain? Do you remember? It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. (laughs) You shall not make for yourself a carved image. They're saying, Stephen, you're the blasphemer of the law. And Stephen goes, I'm not the one that made the idol. You are. You see what he's pointing at them? They're holding to this law as being the almighty end of all things. And he says, the very first one, you broke it before it was even wet on the page. He says, you're the one. You're the one who's blaspheming the law. So who is it that blasphemes? Not me. I believe in the law. I believe in the law. He says, it's you. It's you that have made an idol. It's you that have made an idol, first and foremost, of the law. He <laughs> says, you've made an idol of the law. You've become a religion. You, you have put the outward, the hands, ahead of the head and the heart. You see, God wants to change your heart so that he changes your head and the way that you think, and then it changes your hands, not the other way around. You can't do enough good things with your hand to make your thinking change or your heart change. Only God can change the heart. He does that by believing in Jesus Christ. By believing in Jesus Christ, he says you put on a new man. You have a new way of thinking. There are new thoughts that come to your mind. That's how it changes your head. And from that comes what? The fruit that hangs on the tree. That's the hands. What they did is they made a religion out of obeying the law. (laughs) And he says... That's blasphemy because the law was never intended as. Stephen reminds them of this God whom they'd hold in such high regards and shown himself to have this plan of redemption for them. He, he had been their God when, when he had sent the deliverer Joseph and they rejected him. He'd been their God when he had sent this deliverer, this, this deliverer Moses and they had rejected Moses and now he was being their God as he gave them the law to point them towards the fact that they needed a savior and now they're even rejecting the law he says if you want to talk about blaspheme boys you're in the front row he had called moses to the top of mount sinai to give him the law and god had come down on top of that mountain and and, and he had given him that and while, while moses was on the mountain the people would become restless they'd become restless and they had made that golden idol and they had placed that golden idol as their new god their new god and What had happened when they placed it as their new God? Their hearts were no longer inclined to follow the God. They now had a new God. And it says, what did God do? said, that's what you want. That's what you got. See, be careful. Be careful what you make a golden calf. Be careful what you do for God that you step back and rejoice at the work of your own hands you see there's not a thing that we do there's not a time i step into the pulpit there's not a time that i read scripture and my heart is enlightened that i ever believe that it is me it's all of god 
That's why God placed the Holy Spirit in us to be our leader, our guide, to be our understanding as He changes our heart and our mind to think like Christ and to be like Christ. Be careful, church. Be careful of how the numbers on the board become your idol. Be careful of how the things we give become our idol. See, there is to be no other God. There is to be one God. The things He does through us, we should throw our hands in the air and give thanks that He's allowed us to participate, but not throw our hands in the air and say, look what we have done. You see, because He will turn you over to that heart. If being a Christian becomes a religion that is focused on the numbers and the things that you do and not on God, He'll let you go that path. He'll let you go that path. It'll end in a place called Babylon. Yet they continue to reject him. They continue to direct, direct, uh, reject, deliver. What did God do? He turned them over to that. And it, it was a God that they had fashioned for themselves, that he allowed them to worship. They had these, these gods that were made up in this image. And he said, there, <laughs> go worship. And we know that this is true because we know from the book of Daniel what happened to this group of people. We know about the bondage. And we know why, because Daniel's very specific in telling us that. Now Stephen moves from that accusation about the law as he has stood up before them and said, you know what, yes, there is a law. Yes, I believe in the law. You're the one that rejected it. The law was never given that we might have salvation through it. It was given that we might know that we need this deliverer because he's talking about a plan of redemption of God all through this story. And now he moves to this accusation, the last one that was leveled at him, the accusation that he blasphemes the temple. And he stands up to that by showing respect for the temple. It's a beautiful picture he paints started in verse 44 when he says this, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it in according to the pattern that he had seen which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. That's the whole story. The whole story of how God came to dwell in a tabernacle and later a temple. It's the whole story. It's the whole story in one piece. He said, okay, you're going to accuse me of being against the temple. Let me tell you the story. Let me tell you the story. Stephen recounts the history of the tabernacle. Because if you remember, the temple started with a tabernacle. It was a tent that was moved in the wilderness, you remember. It was moved around. Whenever they moved, it went with them. Before there was ever a stone structure that, that they met at on a regular basis, there was this tabernacle that moved. See, he... He talks about how God had been the one to draw up the plans. You notice he said he appointed, capital H. God appointed these plans. He says how Moses had made it just as God had said. He said God drew up the plans. Moses made it just as he said. Then he moves from that to this temple. He says there that this carried on through Joshua and, and he went into the land possessed by the Gentiles. He said, oh, by the way, you took this tabernacle into the land possessed by the Gentiles, but the Gentiles didn't oppose you. Why? He says there in the end of verse 45, God drove out before the Father. See again. He's showing them this plan of redemption of God. That God has a plan for them, but God goes before them and He's already making the way. He's redeeming. He's giving them a way. 
to go through. Even with this tabernacle, as he goes through into the land of the Gentiles, he says, God's gone before you. So he talks about this moving and, and this, this great movement of the tabernacle. And then he steps into this time of David. Now for the Sanhedrin, for the Israelites, David was a big character. He was a great big character in their story. And, and he talks about this, how, how David desiring to build this temple for God. Remember from 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. David. David said, do you know what? I'm staying in this great big palace and God's in a tent? God's in a tent and I'm in a palace. Let's build him a let's build him a palace. Yet if you remember the story, how God had given him the plan for the temple and, and David had started gathering up the things, but God told David, you know what, David, you're not going to build me a temple. Because you've also been disobedient. There's blood on your hands. He said, Your son Solomon built. That's why he says at the end in verse 47, but Solomon built him, God, a house. See, Stephen points out that in this temple that they hold in such high esteem, it's not even the actual temple that God intended also. See, I find it kind of interesting. I could see him as he's standing before the Sanhedrin, probably in the temple. He's standing in this particular temple before them, and he's defending the fact that they said he blasphemed the temple. And they're probably pointing around as they say, Stephen, you blasphemed the temple, and they're probably making a big show about this temple that they're in. And Stephen's mind probably goes to something that my mind went to. If they're going to hold to the temple, why are they worried about the one that they're in? Because do you know who built the one that they're in? Herod. <laughs> See, it's not even the temple. It's not even the temple that God had laid out the plans for. They're telling, they're telling Stephen, you're, you're blaspheming the temple, and they're sitting in the temple built by Herod. See, they're holding to an object that wasn't even the object of what God had given them. See, the temple was never the important thing to God. How do we know? See, Stephen's telling them that they're up in arms about this temple, and the temple they're defending is not even the temple that God had so uh, designed or ordained, as the Bible says there, that he had ordained or appointed. And this was the place that the, the Sanhedrin had held so dearly to, this place that had the Holy of Holies, this place that they worshipped together. It was, it was a central place where they did the sacrifices, and it was, in their heart, a very special place. And Stephen kind of reminds them, you know what? You're holding to this place, but again, why? Why? Does God really live behind the veil? I'm sure in his mind he's thinking, if he lived behind the veil, what did you do the day that it split from top to bottom? Because it wasn't but just a few days before that as Jesus hung upon the cross that that veil that guarded the Holy of Holies was no longer guarding the Holy of Holies. I'm sure as he stood there and maybe even told him in the rest of the story, this, this you hold to is not even this what it was before Jesus got on the cross, much less what it was when God gave them the plans for it. But then Stephen drops the bomb on them in verse 48. He tells them about this tip. He, he carries them all the way through when he says, you know, he found favor, David found favor, but Solomon built a temple. And then he goes to verse 48. He says, hey, while I've got your attention, while I got you thinking about the fact that you're worshiping and you're, you're holding on to this temple that's not even the original one, it catch this, guys. He says, however... The Most High God does not dwell in temples made with hands. He says, you know what? You're holding on to a building. And here's the funny thing. God doesn't even dwell in a building. 
He says he doesn't dwell in a place. Matter of fact, he goes on just to make sure they understood. He reaches back into their Bible, the Old Testament. And he says, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Oh, what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? He said, you're worried about a building. You're worried about a place for God. And God himself said, what kind of house are you going to build for me? Didn't I make it all? He says, God does not dwell in temples. This is the same thing that Solomon said. The same thing Solomon said in, in 1 Kings 8, 27, as he was finishing up that temple, as he was looking at it, he said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? He said, behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain God. He says, how much less this temple I have built. Even Solomon building the temple to the plans that God had instructed with the material that he had told him to make it with. When he saw this temple, his heart poured out and he said, God can't be contained in this. God is much bigger. Here they were arguing with Stephen saying he blasphemed this building that their forefathers that they held so dearly to had said, God doesn't dwell there. See, Solomon recognized what Stephen was trying to make very clear to them, that God is not contained in a building. And, and wouldn't Stephen have known this? Because what had happened just a few chapters earlier, a few chapters earlier in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit had come to indwell them. The Holy Spirit had showed up as Jesus had left. Stephen stood before them saying, in essence, don't worry about this temple because he's in this temple. See, we need to realize God doesn't live here in this building. God lives inside of each and every one of you as his children. You see, that's what he's telling them. You want to blaspheme, keep doing what you're doing with the temple that God does reside in. He said, now that's blasphemy. What Stephen is saying is God is greater than any of their man-made temples. So they are in fact doing what they're in fact doing is blaspheming against this God by confining him to a temple. In other words, he's saying what you're trying to do is you're trying to put God in a box. God had ordained that the temple be built and that the temple was built to a specific plan given by God and that it was built by a specific person chosen by God and, and that temple that he had done that to that had been built to the plans with the material by the specific person no longer existed. And that's kind of what Jesus was saying when he says, I have come. Those things are done away with. And when I go, there's going to be one that's going to come and indwell you. And Christ is going to live in you and through you. It was no longer about coming to church to be with God. You were going to take him everywhere you went. Everywhere you went. That's why he closes his sermon in verse 51 when he says this. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and heartened ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your father did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your father not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. He starts off, he calls them stiff-necked. That's to be obstinate, refusing to change. Isn't that a picture of the Sanhedrin? 
They had this set of rules, this set of laws, and they refused to change. Unfortunately, it's a picture of our church today. We have a set of rules, we have a set of laws, we've always done it that way, and we refuse to change. What if God were to look down on us and say, you stiff-necked, obstinate people? You see, God doesn't live within a box. We oftentimes try to punch him inside of one to make him very convenient for us to take off the shelf when we need him and to put him back when we don't. But God doesn't live in a box. He said, you stiff-necked people. He goes on to say, you uncircumcised and hardened ears. This would have struck right to the heart because remember the Abrahamic covenant was, was signified by the circumcision. And he says this, this, your ears and your heart, in other words, your hearing and your believing you don't believe in God. You've got your own thing. You're not even circumcised of heart and ears. In other words, what you believe has nothing to do with me, God. You're believing your own thing. You know, sometimes that speaks to our churches today, too. There's so many ideas and thoughts and things that are trying to be made up that are new to keep the attention of people when God said, I have already said that's why he says, when you stand before people to tell them about me, say, thus says the Lord. He never says, make up a thus is a new thing I found. You see, we need to be careful not to put him in a box. We need to be careful not to make up new things about him. It says they even resisted the Holy Spirit. And oh, how that happens in our day and time also. The resistance of the Holy Spirit. You get a burden on your heart for something or God decides he wants you to do something or he wants you to give something to someone or he wants you to participate in someone or something and you come up with a million reasons why you can't. If you ever thought about it, maybe the Holy Spirit taking you to the direction you need to go so that something that may be uh, happening to you or going to happen to you doesn't. Or maybe even more important, he's taking you a certain direction so that someone who may never have the opportunity to know about Jesus gets to hear about him for the first time. Yet we resist. We resist. That's quench the Holy Spirit is the way it's often put in Scripture. And he reminds that even their forefathers, the prophets, had killed and persecuted those. And says, as a matter of fact, let's just take it one step further. They killed the ones that foretold the coming of the just one. Again, who's the just one? You know the answer I told you earlier. It's Jesus. The just one is Jesus. He says... He brings it right down to the point where they've set just a few weeks earlier when they sentenced him to death on the cross. He said, you did exactly what you wanted to do because you were hard of heart, hard of ears. You didn't want to follow the Holy Spirit. You killed the just one. And his name is Jesus. Wow. You talk about pointing to rejection. He just flew a great big flag in front of their face. And even now, they're guilty of rejecting this Jesus and murdering him. And, and look at how they respond. Look at how they respond as we quickly wrap up in that 54th verse. He goes through and he tells them, you know, you've rejected, you've been stiff-necked, you've been uncircumcised, you don't want to hear. These are the things you did. And how did they respond to the message? When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And oh, how I wish that there was a period there. Oh, how I wish there was a period there that said when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Because without the adding of what comes after that comma that says, and they gnashed at him with their teeth, 
I could have a glimmer of hope that they were cut to the heart to the fact that who Jesus Christ really was. But they were cut to the heart that Jesus Christ was who he was and they didn't want anything to do with him. You know, there are people that sit in our churches every week that hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ and really leave saying, I don't want anything to do with him. How do you know that? Because on Monday they look no different. No different than they did last week. After brushing into this Jesus. They go about their merry way making idols with their own hands saying look what I have done. Being stiff necked towards change not hearing or changing in their heart. They gnash their teeth at those who say there is a God. There is a God that loves you. There's a God that loves you so much he sent his only begotten son to die for you. And it's, it's imperative that you receive him as your Lord and your Savior. But it's going to change your life. And that's when they go, I want no part of that. You know, see, when they're presented with the truth, there's two possibilities. Same two possibilities you have this morning. You can gnash your teeth, stay stiff-necked, not hear and not change. And you can leave this place in that state. God is a God of love that will not force himself upon you. He will not make you change. He will do everything in his own power by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart to give you the opportunity. But he won't force you. So you can leave being stiff-necked, uncircumcised. Or you can get cut to the heart and realize this life that I have lived that I have depended on my own ability, the things that I have done that I think are so good that are going to get me into heaven, know when I really look at it, I've sinned against God. And this hearing the truth, yes, cuts me to the heart, but it cuts me to the heart because I've sinned against God. And I want forgiveness for that. And instead of gnashing teeth and going at the one who proclaims the gospel, you reach out to the one who is the gospel. And you say, I take you. You're my Savior. You're the way, the truth, and the life. You're going to be the Lord of my life, not me any longer, because I've made a mess of it. You know, they didn't have that response. It says they cried out with a loud voice. And in 57, it says that they, they stopped up their ears in that 57th verse. It even says they ran at him in one accord. They, they attacked the truth, the truth giver. It says, then they laid hands on Stephen and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him in verse 58. It says they cast him out and stoned him for speaking the truth because they had chosen to lock up their hearts and their ears and say, I don't want to hear, I don't want to change. And the only way they knew to deal with it was to murder Stephen. Just like they had murdered Jesus. See, the only thing they knew to do with this Jesus to stop him was to kill him. And now they took the same decision with, with this Stephen. They took him outside the city. And then what I think is the real gist of the whole message comes in verse 58. You see, when you read verse 58, you should jump up and down and rejoice in your heart that it's there. You should rejoice in your heart that it says, and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And then it adds this, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
If you don't think God's in control of all things, you're sadly mistaken. Even as one of his own stood up and preached the gospel in the face of those who would take him outside of the city and kill him, God was preparing for the gospel to come to you and me. As one life was being taken, the lives of many was being given. Saul, the persecutor of the church who hunted down Christians, who stood at their execution as a witness, who was in on their trials as a witness to their death, stood. And those who were casting the stones, because the witnesses are the ones who cast the stones on the the guilty, the ones casting the stones laid their clothes at his feet. And he stood, and, and, and as he stood there, he heard all that was going on. He heard all that was going on. <laughs> and what is it that he heard? What was it that he was a witness to? Verse 59, And they stoned Stephen as he was calling out to God. And he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound, sound vaguely familiar? To you at all? I remember one with hands nailed to a cross who said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Find it interesting that he says that. And it says in verse 60, another thing that Paul saw witnessed, he says, and he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Again, vaguely familiar at all? Jesus looked at those around the cross and says, Father, don't hold this against them. See this Stephen. This Stephen had a heart of Christ. And it says when he had said these things, he had fallen asleep. And this this Saul had witnessed it. This Saul had seen it all. The most amazing thing about this story is what it says in verse 56. It says, Look, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. If you're not careful, you'll blow right through that scripture and not see what's happening in verse 56 in relation to what we read about what Paul, Saul, had just witnessed. You see, what did Jesus say when he left the earth? He said, I'm going to be with my Father. I'm going to His right hand. And if you know anything about scripture... When you see him at the right hand of the Father after the resurrection, what is he doing? He is sitting. Do you know why he's sitting? Because his work is done. Because his work is done. Yet here, Stephen says, I looked into heaven, and there stood Jesus. Why would he be standing? can only think of one reason. And it's a statement I so dearly love to hear and desire to hear at the end of my life when my eyes are closed and I no longer live on this earth. It's a statement that says, Come on in, my good and faithful servant. I don't think Jesus will be seated when I show up. I think he'll stand. I think he'll stand and he'll say, Come on in. See, even as one of his own was being killed, Jesus stood and said, Stephen, don't you worry. I'll never leave you or forsake you. There's not a thing that you're going to go through that I haven't already been through. I can get you through this. 
don't you worry, Stephen. To be absent from the body is to be present with me. And see, that's what Paul writes later when he faces death. This Saul that his name is changed to Paul later as he's writing to the church and he's in prison and they're about to kill him. What does he say? Exactly what Stephen just lived out. He says, it's okay, kill me. To stay here, I'll glorify God. Kill me and I'll see him face to face. Go ahead. You see, a life, a life that is lived for Jesus Christ as one who desires to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to all, to live out a Christ-like life in the face of all, to be a glory to God in everything that you do, to worship Him in spirit and truth. That life at the end has a picture of Jesus standing. It's saying, come on in. But you know, I believe He'll also be standing in another way for some who don't know Him as Lord and Savior. And what he says there will not be, come in my good and faithful servant. What he will say as you look him in the eye, if you've never accepted him as your Lord and Savior, and you've trusted on your own good works, the religious system, the box that you've put God in, if you've trusted on those things and he stands up for you when you approach at death, I think the words you will hear will be, depart from me, I've never known you. See, you're faced with the reality this morning. The truth is, you're a sinner against the holy God, as I am. There's only one way to rectify that. That's a man named Jesus Christ. That Stephen stood before the Sanhedrin and lost his life. He was so convinced that that was the answer. What have you done with him? When you stand before Jesus and he stands before you, is he going to say, come on in. You're my good and faithful servant which means you're doing something with what he's done. Or is he going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.